Hey, everyone. I'm Morgan. I'm on staff. Hi, friends. This is great. Um, so welcome to service. I'm on staff with Mizzou Chi Alpha, as I think basically all of you know. Um, but we're going to have some fun tonight. I'm excited to see your all beautiful faces from this angle, because I normally don't get to do that unless it's all dark and we're singing our hearts out. Um, so thank you, Tom, for giving me this opportunity to speak some truth tonight. And congratulations to my captive audience. Um, for better or for worse, you're in it with me. So just stay seated. Try to pay attention. That'd be great. Um, before we jump into tonight's message, this year we've been focusing on the theme, Make Your Mark, specifically looking at discipleship, right? <laughs> Thank you, Riley. I appreciate it. Um, and its most basic definition, being a disciple, is about being a servant of God. When we hear the word disciples, we automatically think of the 12 apostles, most of the time anyways. But we're going to expand our vision and recall what Tom has reminded us of, that there are so many more disciples than just the 12. For the next few weeks, we're going to be switching gears a little bit and looking at a different group of people who were really close to Jesus throughout his life and ministry. This series is called Mary Did You Know? Yay! Yes! Marys! Um, so we'll be focusing on the Marys in Jesus' life uh, found in the New Testament. And tonight, we're actually going to kick off with looking at probably the most well-known Mary in the Bible, and that's Jesus' mother. Before we get ahead of ourselves, though, we're going to start off by taking an adventure into Morgan's mind, a deep, dark, dangerous place. But stick with me. We'll make it through it. Um, some of you know this about me, but I'm a pretty hesitant person um, when it comes to new ideas and experiences. I don't like them. Um, I tend to err on the side of caution and never, ever jump into anything blindly. I have to be able to mentally prepare myself beforehand. I had to mentally prepare myself before getting up here tonight. Like, guys, this is terrifying. Um, but this isn't a new development at all either. I've been this way as long as I can remember, which is fine unless your family frequents Disney World all throughout your childhood and you find yourself staring down the barrel of a metaphorical gun called Rock and Roller Coaster for three years in a row. Um, and you have yet to face your fears and actually get on the thing. So you're the lame kid sitting on the ledge outside watching and waving at your siblings who are much younger than you. But there you are. Um, <laughs> so this is my third time. I wasn't going to let it go. Gosh dang it. So I have a choice. Do I suck it up and face the unknown with sheer bravery laughing in the face of fear? Or do I chicken out and enjoy sitting on the ledge once more waiting for their, their triumphant return. Well, I'll give you a glimpse of the outcome of my decision. I think it should be there. I'm on the back right. And I haven't quite made a decision yet about how I feel about my first decision, I don't think. Um, but I can tell you how it all turned out. In the end, I didn't die, which was my biggest fear. Out of all of it, everything stayed intact. I'm alive today to tell the tale. Um, but one, I was relieved when I got off. I was shaking with um, the excess adrenaline that was pumping through my body. And three, I realized that although the initial decision to get on the ride was really difficult, I was completely willing to jump back in line and do it all over again right after that one time. So it took one step to change my eternity with this ride. Yeah, 
like future pictures were much better. I swear I enjoy it now. I just didn't know back then. But you see, when I finally took a risk and stepped out into the unknown, I realized how futile surrendering to that fear was all those years. While I was ensuring my safety, I was also preventing anything good that could have happened um, had I said yes. How many times do we get caught playing it safe when safe is just an excuse to justify listening to our fear over what we've been called to do? I've been there many times in my life. I didn't come to Mizzou with the intentions of doing what I'm doing today. Here's what my intentions and plans look like as opposed to how they actually turned out. So I had every intention of going to Truman State, which is a great school, right after high school. Not Mizzou, but Truman. Um, but I decided to stay at home and get my associates. Not the same thing. I told myself that I'd go to Truman after that one year. I'd go to Mizzou instead. Not the same thing. I ultimately wanted to go into medical missions, but in case medical school didn't pan out, I chose to go into biomedical engineering as a backup plan because why not? Really, engineering's fine, um, easy enough. But I clung to that plan for two years, but going into my junior year, being in school until I was like 35 sounded less and less appealing. If you're looking at med school, doesn't sound like a whole lot of fun. So I'm going with dental school now, yes. So I switched from pre-med to pre-dental, so my plan would still be accomplished because clearly my plan is being executed perfectly up until this point. Like I've done everything by the book, everything that I've planned, not really. Throughout all this chaotic decision making, I was diving deeper and deeper into my relationship with Jesus though. Finally starting to utilize my gifts for him, finally, um, and becoming more and more familiar with his voice. So when God gave me a vision and made it clear that I was supposed to stay and work with Chi Alpha, I knew what I was supposed to do, but that didn't lessen the fear and uncertainty that came along with that calling. Logically, I didn't really believe I was capable of doing ministry well. Plus, I would have to wave goodbye to my plans that I'd held on to for 12 years. This was my turning point, but this point didn't consist of a single moment. This Turning points tend to be a process. So what does this process look like for each of us? What reactions or reflexes do we exhibit when we're thrown a curveball? Do we really believe we're worthy, equipped, and ready to jump into our calling? And is it really as unexpected as we think? Tonight we're going to be looking at Jesus' mother Mary and her encounter with an angel that not only shook her future but impacted eternity. Specifically, we're going to dig into how this teenage girl reacted when she was confronted with her calling. How can someone so young and unexpected, one, be called to do such a thing in the first place, and two, react with such faith and trust in the face of fear? So we're going to look at Luke 1, 26 tonight, um, starting there. It'll be on the screen behind me, I believe. But it says... In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a village in Galilee, to a virgin named Mary. She was engaged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. Gabriel appeared to her and said, Greetings, favored woman. The Lord is with you. Confused and disturbed, Mary tried to think what the angel could mean. 
Don't be afraid, Mary, the angel told her, for you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be very great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David, and he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. Mary asked the angel, but how can this happen? I'm a virgin. The angel replied, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the baby to be born will be holy, and he will be called the Son of God. What's more, your relative Elizabeth has become pregnant in her old age. People used to say she was barren, but she, was con- she has conceived a son and is now in her sixth month, for nothing is impossible with God. Mary responded, I am the Lord's servant. May everything you say, you have said about me come true. Then the angel left. And suddenly I realized I have like no excuse at all to succumb to my fear when it comes to my calling. So how do we become more like Mary in our actions and reactions when God speaks? We can learn a lot from simply looking at the threefold reaction she exhibited when she was faced with Gabriel. What's the threefold process of obedience then? First, we have to separate worldly value from heavenly value. Second, we have to address the impossibility. And third, we choose courage. In order to develop a response like Mary's, we have to be able to separate what we possess that has worldly value and what has heavenly value. Looking at the first portion of scripture again, we see that upon greeting Mary, the angel noticed that, Ma- the angel noticed that Mary was both frightened and confused, and for good reason. Mary was well aware of her status as a teenage girl in this time period. Women in this area or era weren't highly esteemed, even less so in Mary's case because she was a peasant girl from Nazareth. We can only imagine once Mary was able to regain her vocabulary, because I'm sure she's speechless at this point, she was immediately bombarded with the question, why me? What could I have done to find the favor of God? This has to be some sort of mistake. I am no one. If Mary were to take an inventory of her qualifications for giving birth to God's son using sheer logic, she would probably walk away with a blank list. This is where confusion tends to lie. She doesn't stand out from any other girl around. But this interception with the angel is not based upon social status or social standing, but on the standing of her heart. Mary was a woman of faithfulness, obedience, and humility. She's faithfully served God and knew the scriptures. She had equipped herself with truth and knowledge of the God she serves. She lived according to his will. She had no claim to any sort of social standing. Mary was an underdog in the world's eyes, but the perfect candidate in God's. 1 Samuel 16, 7 says, The Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So looking at your individual calling, where's your focus? Are you quick to count the attributes, the world values, or the gifts God's given you? For me personally, I'm quick to see the flaws. And those are the only things that I could see initially whenever I received this calling. I'm not naturally outgoing. I know nothing about communication. Yay, engineering. They don't teach you that at all. 
Emotions haven't always been my friend. And I can count about 25 people who have walked through these doors tonight and every Tuesday night preceding this one that are about a million times more qualified to do my job than I am. But I believe that one thing set me apart, and that was my willingness to just try and trust that God would supplement where I fall short. And yes, I fall short more often than I would like to admit. But I'm convinced that God saw each of my shortcomings and didn't see them as a setback, but more of an opportunity to show his glory and his strength um, and let those shine through my weaknesses. God loves an underdog. We see it time and time again throughout the Bible. So why do we come to the conclusion that our shortcomings are just too much? Because many times we can't see the possibilities for success. So when you're struggling with the questions of how and what if, address the impossibilities that you see. In Mary's case, the angel just finished explaining everything that was going to happen. She was going to conceive and give birth to Jesus, the son of the Most High. But despite the mere fact that she, had, she was actually having a conversation with an angel, Mary still saw the impossibility of the situation. But how can this happen? I'm a virgin. It's logical. Two plus two does not equal four in this scenario. In the midst of this supernatural encounter, Mary's eyes were focused on the natural. But thank goodness God is patient, he can handle our questions, and he provides reassurance. God's not scared of your questions, and oftentimes he wants to hear them. Elizabeth Elliot, um, a phenomenal missionary, once said, faith does not eliminate questions but faith knows where to take them. The presence of questions isn't the issue, but the place we go for answers can be. Your questions don't make you less courageous. In fact, questions can prevent a lot of lessons from being learned the hard way. God wants to bring clarity. He wants to guide you and direct you through the process, and he wants to be an active participant in what he's called you to do. The issue lies when we attempt to find answers and reassurance outside of him. We have to stop running to friends and family for clarity when they aren't even seeking clarity for, from God themselves. God is the one who holds the answers to your questions. After all, if he's the one orchestrating your calling, wouldn't he be the one holding the answers of how to execute them? Take your questions to the right source of answers. In Mary's particular case, Gabriel not only listened to her questions and had patience for her, but he couples her answers with reassurance of God's faithfulness. The angel replies to her question, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the baby to be born will be holy, and he will be called the Son of God. What's more, your relative Elizabeth has become pregnant in her old age. People used to say she was barren, but she has conceived a son and is now in her sixth month, for nothing is impossible with God. In this passage, not only does Gabriel explain the entire process step by step of how God is going to achieve this feat, but he also gives her the reassurance of the testimony of Elizabeth. While Mary saw impossibilities right away, her eyes were open to God's faithfulness in a moment. Elizabeth's story is one that she's familiar with. 
She's witnessed God perform a miracle in her. Yet it took someone calling that miracle to her attention for her to see the scope of God's power. Like Mary, no matter the size of miracle we see in someone else, we forget that God has the ability to use us in the miraculous. But we have to look up and look around. God has a knack for placing people and testimonies around us to remind us of his faithfulness in our unique circumstances. Mary had never seen or heard of another virgin birth before this moment, but the angel reminded her that she hadn't seen or heard of a barren older woman conceiving a child either. So who has allowed God, who has God allowed you to witness walking through the impossible so that you might gain hope beyond the impossibilities of your own life and calling? Maybe it's your life group leader who has claimed victory over mental struggles, the same struggles that you feel like are suffocating you right now. Maybe it's a friend or a family member who's seen God's provision in the most dire of circumstances. Our incredible God, who works everything for the good of those who love him, not only reminds us purely of his character and capabilities as almighty God, but he also gives us an ever-growing collection of testimonies from those around us for those moments when we forget simply who he is. We can even see this in my silly, unrealistic roller coaster fear, as if the reassurance that no one has ever flown out of their seat due to equipment failure before wasn't enough. I had the reassurance that I had witnessed my siblings walk away from that ride unscathed time and time again. Knowing the level of security I can have in the knowledge of whoever orchestrated it knows what they're doing, coupled with the physical proof that this is the case, is more than enough proof to take a step of faith and believe that I won't be the exception to the rule when it comes to survival or when it comes to God's provision. But we must mind the gap here. Once we reach this point, we're in limbo between holding all the information and reassurance necessary and taking a step of faith. We still have to make a decision, and that decision is completely up to us. In a split second, Mary made a decision that was basically unavoidably impacting her future one way or another. On one hand, she would be effectively destroying her reputation as a good Jewish girl in the eyes of most of the society that surrounded her. Would those around her actually believe she's a virgin pregnant with God's son? But on the other hand, she would simply be doing what she'd been doing her entire life every single day, following the law and God's word, simply being obedient to what she was commanded to do by her heavenly father. A decision had to be made, and no one was going to make it for her. It was Mary's turning point. So what will you do when you're faced with your turning point? How much of a gap will you leave between the question and your answer? And do you realize the danger that lies within that gap? Some of you know this. Most of you don't because I'm old and I've been graduated for a little while. Um, but I studied my butt off pursuing a biomedical engineering degree and a minor in computational neuroscience. Um, because why not? Sure. Um, and when you actually pay attention in class every once in a while, you tend to learn a few things, which is really exciting. Who would have thought that? Um, but I'm about to bestow upon you 
some knowledge that I gained in a computational neuroscience class. Yay! Yep, yep, you guys avoided taking that class, but I'm going to make you take it tonight anyways. Uh, <laughs> so, has anyone ever heard of neural or sensory adaptation? Oh, nice, way to go, you guys are smart. Cool. So in short, our brains have the ability to adapt to constant stimulation to the point where that sensory input is no longer noticed. For example, if I were to rest this hand on this stool, I would feel the initial point of impact. But eventually, the part of my brain that re that's responsible for processing that touch will adapt to it, and I won't feel the touch sensation anymore. My brain effectively blocks it out. So why am I giving you this short lesson in adaptation? Well, from where I sit, a very similar process can take place in regard to the gap we leave in deciding to accept or reject God's will for our lives. We have the initial point of contact. When we receive all of the information and testimonies available to us and are now aware we have a choice to make. Ideally, we'd simply say, yes, God, I'm on board. I'm following you wherever you take me. I don't care where, um, but I'm going. But oftentimes, we just let the gap widen. We decide that ignoring it for now will bring clarity later when it only brings more doubt. Personally, my turning point turned into a year of doubt. While I knew God called me here, it didn't align with my plans. It was frightening. And I knew some of the closest people to me would really question my sanity with this decision. As more time passed, it became harder and harder to accept my calling simply for what it was. My mind adapted to that subtle knocking that initially sounded like someone pounding on the door of my heart. But it only got harder to seek clarity and make a decision. Hesitation is dangerous. We see this in obedience all the time. The more time passes between the moment of calling and moment of action, we're less likely to allow faith to win, and time is wasted that could have been used in pursuing the calling we were handed. The stagnant state of a human is easily prolonged, and if we stay long enough, and we stay still long enough, we eventually cease to feel that call. Mind the gap. If we look at Mary's response, she didn't miss a beat. Mary chose to walk in courage and obedience in the wake of her calling. Mary responded, I am the Lord's servant. May everything you have said about me come true. First and foremost, Mary had a firm grasp on her identity and purpose. She automatically identifies herself as the Lord's servant. She saw she had no right to refute the opportunity in front of her, but also had no desire to refute it as well. In her recognition of her role in God's kingdom, she placed herself in a position of simple obedience to the Father, regardless of how unbelievable his plan was. She surrendered her right to her own plans, dreams, and future. Mary chose courage in the face of the unknown and trust in the face of uncertainty. And as a result, God used this girl as a vital participant in the most pivotal event in history. So what can we do to apply Mary's example to our own circumstances? First of all, don't allow your fear and hesitation to allow you to, to disqualify yourself from your calling. 1 Corinthians 1, 27 through 29 says, Instead, 
God chose things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. He chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. As a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. No one in this room is qualified in and of themselves to accomplish anything for the kingdom. But that's where God steps in. He takes the bits and pieces of potential that we hand to him and makes something beyond what our, our imaginations could even conceive. I could have never imagined my life being what it is today, but I'm certainly glad God did. Finally, we recognize God's provision in the past, present, and future. When I look back on how I ended up at Mizzou and ultimately doing ministry, it's almost painfully obvious that God was present through all of it. He dropped Mizzou on my heart. He dropped me in a class with the only Chi Alpha member in the whole bioengineering department, Tyler. <laughs> what a coincidence. Um, and he allowed me to encounter person after person that genuinely loved me and cared about me and pushed me to pursue him more and more every day. He opened up doors for my gifts and abilities to be used and brought redemption and transformation where I honestly didn't think it was possible. And the awesome thing is because I've seen him move time and time again in hindsight, I'm able to use that as a foundation of truth and hope to stand on in the future. Because he has come through for me yesterday and he's providing for me today, I know that he's, his never-changing love, grace, and mercy, that through that I can confidently walk into the unknown knowing that he's going to meet me there. So where do you find yourself in this process? Maybe you're just waiting to be confronted by the calling Jesus has for you. What do you do in the meantime? Be obedient in what he's calling you to do even today. Obedience takes courage and practice. If you know he's told you to make a friend in your history class, make a friend in your history class. If you know he's told you to eat lunch with a stranger once a week, eat lunch with a stranger once a week. Just do it. If you're faithful and obedient in these things, choosing obedience when it comes to your turning point becomes much more possible. Maybe you've been called, but you have questions that need answered. Ask. Pray circles around those questions. Seek wise counsel from mentors who are seeking God's face as well. Please. <laughs> Don't just allow your confusion and fear to eat you alive. Be honest, ask questions, and expect an answer. Or maybe you know where you've been called. God's brought clarity and reassurance but you've just been stalling, and it gets easier and easier every day to ignore it. In the waiting. Set your own plans and dreams aside and step out in obedience. Consider the privilege that it is that God has called you to something greater than your mind can think up on its own. And don't settle for good when God has clearly presented his best to you. Tonight, claim your calling as your own. Choose to walk in courage. 
Choose to trust in promises God has given you, knowing that he always keeps his word and lives, live in such a way that God might use your turning point to affect the eternity of another. So if everyone could bow their heads and close their eyes.